Who wants, Daddy, who wants a pot of coffee? I just make coffee. You want a cup of coffee? Sure, there you go. Who wants coffee? Anybody else want coffee? Who wants coffee? And now, it's time for the man with the caffeine. The new tropics for the brain. It's Coffee with Mike. Hang in, hang tight, grab your cup, and let's get this thing started. Everybody, welcome back. It's Coffee with Mike, Java Chat, sitting here with Marty Strong here. Uh, name may not sound familiar to a lot of you, especially if you haven't been in business and haven't been in mentoring or coaching, or I should say under a mentor or coach. Um, but his story is definitely something that's going to be fun to listen to. Uh, Marty is a retired Navy SEAL, um, which is one of the reasons I'm excited to have him on the podcast today, because um, I I actually work with one part-time, and we talk about a lot of the things that the SEALs have as far as their creed, their, their ethos, the teams, and, the, and how, they, how they all work together, and, and, and so on and so forth, and the mindset, and it's really interesting, Marty's actually taken that and put it into books. Um, he's put it into, uh, I think one's a sci-fi series, one's a, another series that talks about, and it's a fictional character in in, uh, in the Navy SEALs, an officer. And he's actually coming out with a, an, an actual uh, business book because he's now, he's been in the business world, Marty, for what, how, how many years now have you been in the, in the About business 20 world? years. About 20 years. So he's yeah. been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, went on the vacation the second time. And understands the whole world of entrepreneurship. He also understands the world of business. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one of the reasons that I wanted him on here was to one, obviously, share some of his experiences, but to share the insights of what it, you know, bringing the mindset to the business um, and how to be able to um, how to be able to deal with things. Because some, sometimes as entrepreneurs, we get in, we get so ingrained or involved or entrenched that we forget ourselves we forget the mission well, we might not even have one which is also a but we, we we miss a lot of things so marty thanks for coming and joining me today here on java chat really appreciate you coming on yeah thanks for having me mike cool um your uh time with uh the u.s military <clears throat> kind of give us a background of what that was like because you didn't start out as you didn't start out as an officer. You you kind of worked your way through to become one, if I remember correctly. Right, right. So I, I joined the Navy when I was 17, and my intent was to become a radar air traffic controller. After boot camp, I went to uh, 17 weeks of that, of that training, got certified in that. I was supposed to go to a ship in the Mediterranean. <clears throat> but as I found out years later, when I went to take a, a swim test, which I thought was for a competitive race in boot camp, they put my name and my social security number down and some other information. And when I graduated radar air traffic control school, they handed me a packet of orders and said, report no later than 0730 tomorrow morning to Coronado, California. Oh, geez. Underwater demolition seal training, which I didn't know what that even meant. <clears throat> so uh, I, I was given tickets. I went to O'Hare airport within the hour, called my dad, who was a, a, a Navy radar guy from the Korean war. And said, hey, you know, this is what just happened. He had me read the orders and he said, well, son, that's why they call them orders. So go out to California, find a chief petty officer, tell him there's been a mistake and they'll get it all worked out. So I did that and I found a master chief when I, when I showed up at the basic SEAL course. 
And instead of him fixing it, he talked me into trying to course. And uh, six months later, I was one. <laughs> True story. 126 guys started my class. I was the worst runner in the class. I was, I was 126 pounds around and looked like I was 12 years old. And uh, six months later, we had 13 of the original 126 graduating. And I was still the worst runner in the class. Wow. My, my thoughts are, what the hell did the, the chief petty officer say that got you convinced to try it? <laughs> oh, well, it, it was a master chief. It was interesting. He was about five foot three, five foot four, um, Vietnam veteran, multiple tour Vietnam guy. And he sat me down and he said, you know, he looked at my orders and he said, well, you're right. This is a mistake. The SEALs aren't even allowed to take uh, nuclear, the nuclear program, people that go through that school, uh, you guys that go through this school and I think it was uh, missile technicians or something like that. Those are considered advanced schools and they were scarce. Um, it's hard to find people with, with the um, aptitudes to get into the courses and complete them. So they were actually barred from, from recruiting from those groups. <clears throat> so he, he said, yeah, it's a mistake. Then he took a breath and said, so what do you know about this place? I said, nothing. <laughs> and he said, well, did you ever play sports? And I said, yeah, I swam eight years in AAU swimming and all that. He goes, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I, said, I, was I can, in, I was I can hear the gears in his head already yeah. going, oh, oh, we got one now. <laughs> yeah, I played football starting when I was like eight <clears throat> years old. And he goes, oh, okay, football. Yeah, I said, all the way through high school. And he said, well, did the coaches yell at you <laughs> when you didn't do things right? And I said, well, yeah. Did they ever punish you? And I said, well, yeah, you know, we had to run laps. At one school, we had to run up and down the, the, um, the stadium stairs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, the instructors here kind of like those coaches. <laughs> Kinda. Oh they, my they gosh. Want, they, want, they want you to do well and they might yell at you and they might even punish you, but it's just to try to make you better. You know, it's just walking. That's about all I remember the conversation. <laughs> he basically said, look, if, if you don't, it's a volunteer program. And if you decide to quit, um, obviously the Navy's going to put you right on a ship to do this job because, you know, yeah, you, you were already pretty much cinched in. No yeah, so you're, good, you're good either way, right? Yeah. And that was that. Boy, talk about see that lends to the to the whole conversation of framing. Oh well, when a master chief can sit there and frame it according to your experiences to give you a, a point of reference. <laughs> yeah, so you fast forward eight years, and I'm a chief petty officer, and I'm the senior enlisted guy in charge of the first phase of buds where Hell Week is and everything, and uh, and I got it. You know, everybody, not everybody, say 20% of everybody that shows up there says these orders are wrong. It's a mistake. It's good to get cold feet. And so somebody's got to adjudicate that. Usually somebody like me, uh, whoever the senior enlisted guy is in the first phase. And you try to figure out if it's true, if it's not true. And then everybody that wants to quit has to go through a counseling process. So at some point they end up talking to either the senior enlisted guy or the officer in charge. Hundreds and hundreds, uh, hundreds of times I talked to young men in conversations like that master chief was having with me. So you get pretty good at it. Uh, you know? I, I was, I was going to say after a little bit of practice. Yeah. <laughs> the framing thing, like, you know, I don't want to be a SEAL. Well, what do you know about the SEALs? Well, nothing. So how do you know you want to be one? You know, it, it, it's, it's not even advanced psychology. It's, it's just kind of, uh, oh. yeah. It, it, it's honestly 101 if you look at it from, from proper perspective. Because all, all you're doing is finding out the truth and then presenting an opportunity and with, yeah. with zero risk. If you think about it, I mean, what's, what's the biggest 
what's the worst thing that could happen? You quit? Yeah, and you know, he was a real nice guy, so I didn't think there was any threat in sticking around. Uh, I believe what he was saying. But, you know, I remember one time I was counseling a, a kid that was considering quitting, and he looked at me and says, well, Chief Strong, um, why did you, how did you get through? How, what got you through, you know, Hell Week? What was going on in your head? And I said, I, I have no clue. I just put one foot in front of the other and uh, figured I either fall asleep or they'll kill me, but in either case, I won't know any better. <laughs> and, uh, if, if I survive it, I'm going to wake up at the other end and I'm going to be a seal. Yeah. And that wasn't helpful to him. He was like, he was, he was looking for, he was looking for an inspiring story. Uh, <laughs> some kind of a hook. He could hang his whole, you know, ego on and say, I'm going to do what chief strong did and I'm going to make it through. And yeah. Uh, it doesn't always, it's interesting. It, it, obviously the, the seals to become a Navy seal, it really isn't cut out for everybody. I mean, just the documentary that I watched on Hell Week, just Hell Week, not even the rest of it, because I know there's, after talking with Charles, obviously there's way more to it, um, but just Hell Week alone. Yeah, it's, uh, so you got 75% attrition. Yeah. Every class, on average, going back like 30-something years. And every class, I mean, they used to start somewhere between 100 and 125. They've had some bigger classes at different times, depending on whether there was a war going on uh, or the Navy could, you know, fill more people in the beginning of the, of the recruiting funnel or less people. And, you know, there's a lot of processing and a lot of screening that goes on well before they ever show up to be that hundred person class. So yeah. there's attrition going on from thousands of people that want to do it down to you get the final ones that are approved. They get in there, they have to pass all kinds of tests, including physical performance tests. They show up and 75% of those people quit over and over again so you're right that not everybody's cut out for it um the air traffic control thing you know air traffic controllers uh fighter that's another, pilots and, that's another rough uh arena we've because we've we've talked with some of the air traffic controllers my my son's very interested in flight and the brains wired differently here the brains are wired differently yeah and fighter pilots and advanced aircraft how can you get your brain to go and think in like five dimensions and take all that input yeah it's not that people can't fly a vehicle or fly, fly an aircraft. It's that the advanced aircrafts are, and just like air traffic controlling, are demanding you to be poised, comfortable, and handle a huge amount of inputs and then make judgments. And they're, you know, everybody's just like one pie plate short of being <laughs> qualified, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was interesting the conversations that we had with the ones that we met. There was a couple that, that work up here, and there's a couple worked out of McCarran. Um, and we talked with, I think, two or three of them my son did and they said it's a it's a super high stress job i mean like you said they have to have their eyes literally on all of the sky above the valley at all times from thirty thousand feet down depending on what they're responsible for and right. you make one wrong call somebody we're in the middle of the mountains and yeah. I've, I've actually talked to pilots that told me that yeah they i they forgot about me they had me heading straight for black mountain I literally turned, they jumped on the radio and they started chewing me out. And I'm like, yeah, about another minute or so, I'd have been in the wall. So it, it's anybody that goes through these advanced classes, it, it's it's definitely a, it's a it's a mental training. It's a, even it is. Much is a mental training. It, whether, it you, whether you make it through or you don't, you, you're never gonna come out the same if you go through something like that. Yeah, and, and I'm a big believer in the flow state. I've read a lot of books on it and study yeah. it you know, advanced athletes. And, you know, if, if you're 
and you hear this all the time, if you're in combat or if you're in, you know, competitive, um, like MMA fight or, mm-hmm. or if you're in the cockpit flying some advanced uh, aircraft or an aircraft controller, those people handle the stress of it because it actually stimulates them. It doesn't, you know, beat them down and they get into a flow. And when you're in that flow state, things slow down. Yep. For people that can do that, you know, and, and their brains think that way, everything kind of slows down and they see everything kind of, you know, where it is and in its place. And then they, they make decisions, you know, and, and rack and stack the priorities where somebody else would just see everything coming at their head, you know, yeah. all at once. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> in the time that you were in, now this is, this is when you were uh, chief petty. Um, in that, in that time that you were in, did you ever deploy or was it always with training? Oh, no, it was, so there wasn't much money in the Navy back in those days. So I was at SEAL Team mm-hmm. 2 for eight years. That's where I went right after I got out of uh, BUDS training. And there's a, they have a thing in the Navy called shore duty where you get to take a two-year break. And the whole Navy has it. We didn't have it because there was no place to send you know, SEALs to. The West Coast was a little bit better off because they had the basic SEAL course compound right there with adjacent to all the SEAL teams. And there were anywhere from, you know, 30 to 40 instructor positions there. So they could take time off, take a break, whatever, from deploying. Uh, the East Coast, we had very few, if, if, if any, options. So I went a full eight years. Most of us back in those days on the East Coast at SEAL Team 2 did that. And there were only two SEAL teams back then. Mm. Um, so I got to the end of the eight years, and they opened up the dollars and said, you know, people can go on shore duty. And I wanted to go to school and possibly go to officer's Canada school and become an officer. So I took a um, set of orders to go to the basic training course. And I made chief right after I arrived there and ended up being the senior enlisted guy in first phase. So I spent those two years doing that, going to school at night and left from there to uh, officer's Canada school to become an officer. So I've had two, two year tours outside of a, of an active SEAL team. I came back as a Lieutenant years later to be the officer in charge of the third phase of SEAL training, which is the land warfare, demolitions, weapons, tactics, those kinds of things. So four out of 20 years, I was at the schoolhouse and the other 16 years I was in a SEAL operating. And then I'm sure that there's a bunch of wonderful stories in that one too. What were some of the what were some of the better lessons that you saw were learned, not necessarily by you, but that were learned in, in like phase three? Because so, you know, Buds is a, let's see if you can handle this, is what I, what I gather. But you get into the next phase is where you actually have to train this thing in this case. So sure. all of a sudden, so, shit changes. Right. So most of the, the commando courses around the world and in the United States have a selection um, process or sequence <clears throat> or crucible. Um, it's not the entire training course. It's usually upfront. It weeds out the people that, uh, psychologically shouldn't be there. It calls the class down to a, um, a manageable class that you can start teaching technical skills to. So the second phase of SEAL training is diving and they learn basic scuba and they get into advanced scuba. There's some underwater competencies and some stress tests to make sure they don't freak out underwater. But, uh, and there's a little bit of attrition associated with that. But for the most part, if you made it through hell week, you rarely lose anybody after hell week. And then the last phase is land warfare phase. So that's the first time we start to have everybody start thinking individually. Up to that point, you have a class officer, he's getting a head count. Everybody's learning individual skills. 
they're, we're stressing, you know, the we versus me mindset, but that started on day one, even before hell week. So that that's kind of embedded already. But now we're going to take the individual students and teach them how to use a map and compass. You know, what do you do if you're lost? You got to start making your own decisions. Um, well, how are you with this particular weapon? Because the accuracy of that weapon is, you know, the, the weapon's perfect. You're imperfect. So I match the two of you together. We got a problem or we got a professional, you know? So you, work with that. so you do that with all the different tools and you start teaching them the very rudimentary beginnings of what everybody else in the Marine Corps and Army would learn in an infantry, basic infantry course. And then that's, then they get delivered to the um, SEAL qualification uh, training, SQT, which is another four months or so of uh, intermediate training. So we take land warfare and diving, and we take it a couple of notches up. They start learning more complicated tactical um, target sets, how to clear buildings, clear rooms, you know, board ships, uh, skydive. Uh, skydive is a team flying under their canopies over distances. Um, all kinds of things like that. So usually you don't lose anybody in that, but there's more of this kind of, you gel as a team, but you, you perform as an individual professional. You have to execute. Everybody relies on everybody else around them. You don't, you don't have any um, like timeouts or anything. So if you've got three things to do, you better execute them. And if you're not very good at them, you better be training it on the side to get as good as you need to be. Everybody's relying on you. You're relying on everybody else. So that really, really fuses in SQT. And after SQT, you go to the regular SEAL teams, wherever you're going to be assigned. So you come in there, then there's advanced training. They put you in a SEAL unit, uh, you know, either a troop or a platoon, and you go through some advanced skills, uh, schools and things, uh, like the medics will all go to an advanced medic school that the Army runs in San Antonio, Texas. Um, if you're going to be a jump master, you go to a special school to learn how to put people out of the airplane under parachute. If you're going to learn how to put boats out of the back of a cargo plane you learn how to do that put parachute big cargo chutes all these specialty schools then you reassemble and start training as a combat unit so all through that everybody's got an individual task the, the leaders have an additional task that is to lead and it's, it's planning it's understanding how to kind of project management how to prepare how to put together the plan how to how to manage that plan the, the resources, the logistics of getting everything moving, bullets, beans, guys, guns, whatever, uh, lots of transport logistics. So you get all that as a fire hose as the leader. And you could be um, one of the two senior enlisted leaders or three senior enlisted leaders in that, in that tactical unit or one of the couple of officers, but you all kind of share that responsibility. Usually the enlisted guys are already expert at it, the enlisted leaders, and they're, they're there to help groom and assist and advise the officers as they're learning it and getting better and better at it. Um, that's kind of the, the gist in kind of normal times. Lots of training management, lots of training design. And then you do the actual mission training, which in that, in that case, you're making tactical judgments. You know, go left, go right, send two guys, send four guys, call in an airstrike, back off, abort, everything's wrong. All those little go, no go criteria decisions. It takes years. It, it, all in, it probably takes from the day you start in BUDS to the day you're a competent <coughs> leader, for sure. It's probably three and a half to four years. That's honestly fast. It is, but you have a huge amount of money being thrown at you. The people that are training you are, are world-class experts. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, they're very, very mm -hmm. efficient at teaching people behaviors. 
Some of that is standard classroom, but a lot of it is putting you into kind of a, you know, scenario type training where they put you in a, put you in a scenario, a room, a, a, a square of turf in the middle of the woods, you know, whatever it's going to be. And they throw things at you and they throw hooks at you and curves at you. And they tell you to plan perfectly. You plan perfectly. You brief a perfect plan. You go out there and then that's never going to happen. They know it. You don't know it. And you're running around trying to make up a better plan as you're running and being chased or something, you know, and your guys are watching you, you know, like, Hey, sir, you know, nice call. Yeah. And you can tell by the way they say it, whether, yeah. <laughs> whether it's a, it was a nice call or you're, you're, you're dumbass. And they're just telling you in a, in a different way. And uh, cause if you make a mistake in light infantry and special ops, everybody pays. Oh yeah. You know, you get yeah. lost. Everybody walks an extra 10 miles with a hundred pounds on their back. So yeah, there's, there's a social price to, to failing as a leader in a SEAL team. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting when we, after the break, because we're going to bring all of that stuff and how that applies in business uh, and entrepreneurship, whether you're solo, because same thing in the world of business. Sometimes you're a solo operator. Sometimes you're on a team and leaders make mistakes. The whole company suffers. So it, it makes yeah. absolute sense. Um, you left, you finally retired when? What year? 1995. Officially okay. 1997. <clears throat> and then you went into the world of business, right? Right. Started, I believe, in financial management? Yes, yeah, so I went right into a company called Leg Mason to uh, become a financial advisor. And uh, that was interesting. You, you, had to, you had to get a license in, in stocks and bonds. Was, so it was two different licenses, Series 6, Series 7. You had to get a Series mm -hmm. 65 for money management. You had to get um, life insurance. You had to get a bunch of stuff. And you were supposed to be a holistic advisor to high net worth clients. And what I didn't realize is they weren't going to give me any clients. I thought they were, I had to go out and find my client starting at zero. And yeah. so I had a, you know, an undergrad in business and a master's by that time in business and none of it helped because they didn't teach you how to sell. And so I'm asking everybody that I can ask, I'm running around doing what's called cold walking, knocking on doors of businesses, trying to, you know, meet the, uh, the owners. Um, I'm cold calling. I'm going to conventions and setting up booths and kiosks. Eventually, I kind of locked into uh, seminars, and then I, my business started to take off. Eventually, after a couple of years, I, I shifted over to United Bank of Switzerland. Uh, UBS set me up as a, a portfolio manager, and they allowed me to just go after high net worth. So I didn't have to take retail um, customers coming in off the street. That's cool. Um, and I was you know, managing a portfolio that my, that my clients kind of adhered to, kind of like your own little mini mutual fund. Sure. Sure. And kept building my business and did that for seven and a half years. And eventually one way or the other, I had to learn how to sell. It's, it's so amazing to me to, to this day, they still do not teach sales skills in school. No, I, I mean, you know, if, not even management of sales. I mean, they talk about sales numbers, like they're just something that happens, but. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the one, it's the one disconnected element in, in education that I've noticed that in financial literacy. But they, yeah. they just, they just, it's beyond me to think, okay, you're going to go out there and you're going to run this company. How are you going to make your, how are you going to make your money? Well, we're going to sell this. Who's going to sell it? Well, we'll hire sales guys for that. How do you know if they can sell? Right. Well, they're certified by who? What Croc's been selling this, the come learn how to sell million dollar deals and ends up teaching them how to be 
horrible closers. <laughs> yeah, and mine was mine was a pretty, you know, stark reality check. I was in a job where if you were the best officer of the United States Navy, you got paid the same as the worst officer in the United States Navy. So the only merit, they might give you a medal once in a while, but it had nothing to do with your economics, your personal economics. And, and the paycheck showed up whether you were sick, didn't matter what was going on, right? The check just showed up. After the, uh, the training stipend for the first six months, we went on full commissions and, um, and fees, zero salary, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't sell, you, you didn't, didn't get a money. paycheck. Yeah. And at first I, I was terrified. I had little kids. I'm like, what did I do? What a stupid mistake. Um, once I started to get clients, once I started to grow, I loved it. I'm like, you know, it's pure merit. You know, the tote board is the reality of the, you know, some total of my positive efforts. If I do a good job and they also, they also would give you bonuses based on your assets under management, which meant you either had to capture new assets or you had to be good at investing money for people and oh, yeah. it would grow that way. So you could have maybe a, a 30% growth in new assets from capturing new customers. And if your portfolio was growing at eight or 9%, that was compounding on top of that. So everything was merit-based all the way up, all the way down. You could, you could scale up and they gave you more and more percentage of your sales based on how much your sales were. So it was a ladder to success and you got to keep more and more and more. If you decide to sit back by a, fast car and kind of have fun that slack your pipeline dried up you went right back down the ladder <laughs> it didn't matter how long you've been with the company it didn't matter if you were a harvard graduate it was a pure darwinian meritocracy yeah 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 i think that let me see how i can say this properly there's a harsh stigma around commission only work that a lot of people uh don't really understand what it means to be commission only. Um, yeah. There was this whole movement just recently, and it, it drives me nuts when I see it, of people that claim to be sales trainers saying, well, if the company doesn't offer you a salary with your commission, it's not a real sales position. And I, I just, I shake my head and I look at that and I go, who are you, why are you telling these people this? Why are you telling anybody this? If they're taking a commission and a salary, they're half order taker, if not mostly order taker. That's not a sales position. A sales right. position is being able to denote a problem and bringing a, a solution, a proper solution to it. Then comes no, the art. So, I mean, the definition of incentive to change your behavior to, to, to a positive outcome is everybody having their own personal risk reward moment. So if there's no risk, why take the, why, why do anything for a greater reward? You're good to go. I'm paying my bills. You know, my, my live streaming's coming in when I want it to, you know, I'm, I'm good. And that's not the behavior you need. You know, it all ties to the bigger picture the strategy. And if you want to take, take markets, you know, you want to penetrate, you know, the next state or that all requires capture. Usually capture is you're capturing either eyeballs or you're capturing minds or you're capturing dollars and that somebody else owns. And that is an aggressive behavior and that's going to be defended and that people are going to counterattack with their own behaviors. So it's a very competitive, aggressive environment that people set these, these sometimes lofty growth goals. And they're depending on somebody down there kind of in the bowels to be fighting and being hungry and being, you know, a scrapper getting out there, trying to get that turf, trying to get yep. that new customer, take it away. You know, 
that's a different kind of the kind we were talking about air traffic controllers, the kind of people that are good salespeople. And there's different, depending on what you're selling, there's different kind of special skills, but um, they have incredible self-confidence. They're self-reliant, they're self-starters. They, they plan, they, they learn, they're learning animals. They figure stuff out. All you really have to do is just set them free. And sometimes it's hard to teach it. I mean, to, to be great, but you can teach people to be good. And good is usually a lot better than everybody else. Good's more than enough to make a comfortable living. If, you, if yeah. from, from what I've seen and what I've done myself, when you're good, you're okay. You got a roof, you got food, you've got pretty good wardrobe, if you will. It's just, it's, when you get to be great, you see all these heavy, you know, super performers that are out driving the Lamborghinis and doing all of this other mm -hmm. stuff. Some of them are money managers. Some of them are just insurance agents. Some of them are, you know, they work in whatever industry, whether it's tech, oil, what, what have you, but they're out there and they're, they're the super performers. And unfortunately, a lot of people like to try to compare themselves to that person. That's like, you, you really don't know what they've gone through to get to where they're at. I guarantee you, they've all had, to, they've all hit the wall at least once or twice. Oh yeah. And yeah. it's not a pleasant wall to hit, trust me. Cause it's like, it's like a three footer <laughs> and you're running into it with a bike, not a truck. It's, right. it's not, it's not as pleasant as you think, but the resilience that they learn from that, the bounce back that they, that they get from that because of that resilience is the reason that they're doing so well now, because it's, it's, it's basically, they made the choice to hang in, get after it and just keep trying until they make it. Um, Cool. We're going to take a short, quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll talk about more of this journey in the business realm because you actually got into business coaching and mentoring and um, investing, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure these are things that are all going to have some excellent relevance here in the next section. Sure. So, guys, hang in there 30 seconds. We'll be right back. And we're back. Java Chat, Coffee with Mike, sitting here with Marty Strong, uh, author, coach, mentor, investor. Jeez, uh, what other titles can we put on you? Um, we, we, we talked about your history um, with the military and a little bit about your, your first experiences out as a uh, financial planner. Um, but you started getting into other things. And, I mean, you did the financial planning thing for, for like just shy eight long? years, seven years, about a year. Just shy, yeah, just shy eight years. And then what, what happened? I mean, was it, was it just like a, I'm done, or was it one of those things where you saw an opportunity? I mean, it happens for everybody. So sometimes yeah. it's like, hey, I'm over this. I got to go do something else, which is a typical well, entrepreneur thing. It's it was a combination of one small thing and one big thing. So the small thing was, I was scrambling for the first three years, but once the referral flow started, I started making really good money. I didn't have to work very hard to grow. It was more about optimizing my what they call the book of business. Yeah, making sure I have the right kind of clients and everything. And it felt like I'd gone from 150 miles an hour down to about 50 miles an hour because everything was under control. I'd hired a couple of people to help me with processing, you know, some of the stuff. That was kind of in the back of my mind. I was coaching youth football. I was, um, I was on TV um, as a counterterrorism expert, you know, from time to time. And then I was at a um, regional vice president's office with uh, another UBS guy and we were sitting there talking one morning uh we traveled down to see him from where we lived in upstate Maryland and somebody jumped in the room and said that a plane had just hit one of the trade towers oh so 
a lot of the people in UBS on that floor either had worked for like Lehman Brothers or new people in that building that day. And people were calling them, making sure they were, there were actually people, you know, 50 feet from me talking to people trapped on the building. And he had a little, little TV set in the office. And so when somebody else a little bit later stuck their head and said a second plane just hit my, my, my brain immediately, you know, I looked at the guy next to me and I said, we're at war. And neither of them understood why I said that. And then we turned the TV on and just in time to see the second plane hit and everything I was doing, <laughs> everything I'd been doing for seven and a half years, everything I'd built felt like a waste of time and irrelevant within seconds. And all I could picture in my mind was everybody in, in the teams running down the hallway, jocking up, that's getting your gear on everything and getting ready to go. And so all I wanted to do is figure out a way to get back into it. Now I'd been out at that point for almost six years, you know, five yeah. years, six years, six years. Um, and I, I retired with a disability because my back injury and a parachute jump. But I thought, well, maybe they'll, you know, I'll just call and see. And like, yeah. Well, they didn't really think about it at the time. Later on, they, they, they pulled almost everybody out of the reserves, put them, activated them. And, you know, they were pulling people in to do desk jobs and stuff so they could free up guys to be fighters. Yeah. And the SEAL teams weren't that big back then to start with. So that was, that was probably the first five or six months after 9-11. I was just having this, this debate in my mind about, you know, the value of my life and the value of the time I was spending. And I'm, I'm making other people rich. I mean, that's kind of what I was doing for a living. Yeah. So that's why it, ultimately I left. I decided that I was going to do an exit. And since I couldn't get in in uniform and kind of get in some way with the government, I got a call. Somebody asked me if I would do some counterterrorism advisory work. And the, um, the work was fairly close. I was up just north of D.C. So they reactivated my, my security clearance. I went in there kind of a think tank environment, did some work there, definitely got the bug again, came back out, started making plans to, to sell my book of business and move on, put my shingle out there as a consultant. And about the same time I was going on CNN, Fox news, uh, pretty regularly after nine 11, because once you're on and, and you, you know, don't trip up on, on camera, um, they suddenly want you and you get a, you get a guest rating. I don't know if you knew this, but every quarter hour gets a rating. It's the host, the guest, and sometimes the topic gets a separate rating and then the producers mix that. So if you're a great guest and there's a mediocre host, um, the topic isn't as important, but if you're a mediocre guest and a mediocre host, it better be a hot topic. And, and then you actually get rated within those systems on how many points you score as a guest. They stick you in I didn't know all that until later, but I did over 350 hits on TV, a couple of History Channel specials on terrorism. Uh, I was a counterterrorism advisor to the uh, 2004 Olympics in Athens, Greece. That was about the best I could do. That you know, I wasn't in uniform, but that's how I ended up getting out of the out of the uh, financial services, and that kind of segued me into government contracting and eventually into management leadership of divisions of companies in government contracting. You, you literally ended up leading a multi-billion dollar company, if, if I remember correctly. Well, I didn't lead it. I was a senior vice president. My job was uh, business development and marketing and corporate communications for seven separate 
companies okay. that all added up to about a billion in revenue. The, um, I mean, I was one of the senior executives reporting to the president. The, uh, the interesting thing about that, you know, I learned a lot about people in the investment business, less about investing and more about individuals and how they think about money, how they act about money, how they act about family yeah. and money, how family acts about money uh, when somebody has all the money passes away. I mean, that was an education. Very, very self-focused for the most part which that you know, makes sense. You're, you're, you're yeah. serving that purpose for them in their lives, but also got to meet hundreds and hundreds of self-made business people, high school graduates started out washing cars. By the time they were my customer, our client, they had five uh, dealerships and they you know, had a fleet of, you know, antique planes. And I mean, these are crazy good stories. You know, most of them had been bankrupt once or twice, you know, learning, learning the ropes. And my, my high net worth clientele was primarily that type of, that type of person. And when you're not talking about finances, they want to talk about business. They want to talk about the people they're having trouble with in business. So there was actually, I didn't know it, but there was kind of a, a schoolhouse effect in those eight years, listening to them, having trouble with a manager, a salesperson, you know, a deal that went, that fell through setting up a new location, you know, all the logistics, the real estate components that had nothing to do with why I was sitting in front of them. But once you're considered an advisor to somebody like that, they tend to share a lot of stuff with you. And uh -huh. I just sucked it. I sucked it up. Didn't think I was going to have any app. You know, there's no applicability to it. You fast forward when I ended up working in the um, government contracting company, you know, there was org structure. There were, there were salespeople. There were, you know, finance people. It was, you know, your classic kind of, kind of bureaucracies, you know, set up. Company was scaling rapidly. I didn't know anything about scaling except for my personal scaling when I was learning how to manage money. And I realized I had learned a lot listening to all those guys, kind of like my own little Napoleon Hill moment, you know, yeah. I'm hearing, they're all telling me what the essence of this is and the essence of that is, and it's stuck. And so I could see what the essence of the fix was. So I started fixing things mechanically, operationally. Then I started growing a division. And then eventually they wanted me to try to grow multiple divisions and actually eventually multiple companies and and i learned all that kind of on the fly but i was relying on those those early those early lessons and being put in charge of people because when you're managing money you're not in charge of people right i had two two people two direct reports eventually like a year five and six but once you start getting into a large organization like that now the lessons learned the leadership you know uh, methods that you had back in the seal teams and for most military leaders, you know, they'd have the same lessons. They suddenly are applicable. You know, you train your replacement. You treat everybody like equals. You treat them as a team. You create teams. You know, you get the, you know, we versus me set up between the individuals interacting. You cross-train everybody. You create bench strength. You create resiliency. You create depth. And, you know, these are all things that I didn't learn in business school either, but I learned it in the SEAL teams. And they, they were a direct, you know, transfer. Those things worked. And to this day, I had, today I'm a CEO now. And, and I was in a meeting this morning for an hour and a half on, on a whiteboard. Same, the same exact lessons applied to creating a whole new team. It's only a four person team to start with, but they all, they all have to be cross-trained to gain all those other efficiencies and capabilities. What would you say, and this, this, I've noticed this happens a lot in, in, uh, startups and tech startups in particular 
you get certain ones that are founders and they're, they're brilliant, really intelligent people. Um, but they're afraid to do the cross training because, and to me, it, it seems like a, this is a personal thing. It seems like when you're that intelligent, you're worried that somebody's going to take your worth. What do you do with people like that? Or how do you get them to understand? Because it's the we versus me kind of mentality. The me is you're brilliant. You have a lot to bring to the table. You have to bring some of that brilliance to others so that they can pick up the slack in case you get overloaded. What do you do with people like that? Or how do you, how do you relate it to them so that they can see and get them to like, let, let go of some of the control. So I picked up what wisdom I have in this area through two different kind of two different contexts. One is being a leader and having, you know, my subordinate management teams having the same problem. They're not training anybody below them. You know, they, they're trying to do it all themselves and um, interacting with people that are founders, owners that uh, have asked me for advice. And a lot of times I'll just say, so what are, what are the problems you're running into right now? Like your top 10 problems. What do, you, what do you think about, you know, this morning when you woke up? And, and so they tell me, and well, is there anybody assigned to that responsibility? And always there's an answer and it's yes. So what are they doing about it? You think they woke up this morning concerned about it? And it's funny, then they kind of go, well, I, you know, so why did you pick that person? Why is that person still here? And if they were doing the job and they were fixing this problem, then you would be thinking about this problem when you woke up this morning. So I have to kind of determine pretty quickly, is this a control thing? You really want to have this problem because this is where you feel vibrant and potent and a part of everything. Because sometimes when you're the founder and you're the genius and put it all together, in the beginning, it's like me starting out my, my book of business at Lake Mason. You have no customers, no clients, and no money coming in. And it's like, oh, you, know, you work in nights, weekends, doing anything. You're the chief cook and bottle washer, right? But eventually, if you build something, you're not. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think it's so much the boredom. It's you love to be in that moment. You should be in charge of startups, not in charge of companies that have matured to a certain point. Yeah. Because that's where you you're, get your juices flowing. So if I see that, then there's a bigger problem. If it's just they haven't picked some, some good leaders and they haven't held them accountable, that, that can be fixed. The, one of the mechanisms is you eventually just have to direct everybody to create the bench strength. You have to have tools. Like we have a matrix that has the name of everybody on one side and across the top, all the skill sets or knowledge areas. And then we rank them uh, from apprentice, journeyman to master. And the... Um, the strength of the entire unit is added up on this spreadsheet. So you add everybody up. If they're all apprentices, you have a team strength of one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you can modify your team strength and you can test it. You can measure it. You can look at it, but it's a way to, you know, as long as you keep asking them for that document on a regular basis, they realize somebody's paying attention. So they have to start actually training people and cross training yeah. people because it's extra work. And, and it's very, I found it's very directive and it's very top-down enforcement of that as an exercise, as a discipline, if nobody sees the value in it all by itself, which unfortunately, that's what I usually see. Most, most people see that as, oh, that's really great. But, and what happens is everybody gets back to stovepiped, then somebody quits and it's like a leg on a stool just got whacked off, you know? Yeah. Like, well, okay, so we just fell over, but why? I mean, it, this might happen. How about putting an extra leg on the stool or 
you know, have a, yeah. have a leg that swivels over and takes, now it's a three-legged stool, but, it's, you know, and, and people just don't anticipate that and they don't see the value in it. And you try to get, try to convince them, try to coach them, try to show them. But at the end, if like as a CEO, if they don't do it, then you have to say, you're going to have to do it. And I'm going to pay attention to this. And I'm going to check this regularly because it's, it's a key to the success of the organization. It's a key measure of the strength of the talent of the organization. The other scenario is, is hard. It just said, you know what you should do? Maybe bring somebody in to be the, the president of the company and go invest in another smaller company and build it up. Yeah. yeah. So you can, that you sounds can, like what you, you love to do. That hunger. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting, it's an, the, what you just explained is an interesting um, scenario. Um, I see that in a couple of companies happening, including a couple that I'm involved with. I see that happening right now um, where that's somebody's kind of glommed on and is holding on to the control of certain elements and is kind of holding some things up. So um, definitely it's hard. It there. becomes a part of your personality. It becomes a part of your self-esteem. Yeah. It, it's what gets you up out of bed in the morning. It's what gets you excited. And then as you build it and it gets more mature and you structure it to survive and scale, you're actually killing the best job you ever have in a way you're becoming irrelevant or at least you're becoming less relevant. And, and there's a, there's a, there's a gap there. You know, it's kind of like the empty nester syndrome in a way. It's like, now what do I do with all this time? You know, it's, and there's adrenaline and uh, dopamine and all that associated with challenges and risks and then solving problems, you know, difficult problems. That's all. It's, it's also getting them to recognize where the waterline is. And if yeah. the ship's under that waterline, you may want to start, you may, you might want to start the bilge pump at least. <laughs> that's, that is, that is a military cliche. Any, anybody that's been a senior NCO in any of the services trying to get the officers to learn how to lead without getting down into the, as you said, you know, below the decks of a ship without <laughs> going down in there, interfering. Cause there's a structure there. There's, oh, yeah. there's different graduations of, of enlisted leadership <clears throat> and they have the work is broken into little packets and the lowest level leader can handle the packet that they've been given. And it all kind of works and it's worked for a long, long time. And we taught you the system, just trust the system. But a lot of times they want to jump in because they want to feel relevant and they don't have any relevancy yet. Right. Cause nobody, nobody's asking them for their advice. Exactly. <laughs> Cause they just exactly. showed up, you know, there's five guys sitting there and they've got, you know, 80 years worth of experience doing whatever it is. And you showed up, you know, last week with, you know, out of the pipeline. <laughs> and, and, and so you have a lot of, I spent a lot of time as a senior enlisted guy and a lot of time as an officer. And, that, and my first novel, uh, SEAL novel, starts off with a guy like that. You know, it's, it's not me. It's a, it's a normal young officer with hopes and dreams and flaws and wanting to be perceived as an equal, but there's no way in hell he's going to be perceived as an equal anytime soon. Not, yeah, and not off the, the gate. That's not possible. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's one of the interesting things, too, when, you're, when, you, when you think about being a fresh officer um and some of the some of well, who was it that said it i can't remember officers are paid to make decisions hard decisions and it's usually when the shit has hit the fan yeah. that it's time to earn your pay because your enlisteds are waiting for you to make a call and it's the same thing with, you know, CEOs and executive level, senior executive levels. It's like, 
you're not paid to go down and go do the work of you know the people that are doing the, the accounting you're not paid to do the work of the people doing the sales you're not paid to do work to do the creative your job's to make a call on what needs to be done by them that's where you earn your pay because it'll show up in the numbers yeah and ultimately you are the disciplinarian and the the keeper of the flame whatever that whatever that plan or strategy is yep. because everybody else is going to get focused on their toes you know that's just the way people are your technical people are going to focus on what's going to happen tomorrow and you know you have to you have to zoom in and zoom out you have to look out at the horizon and make sure you're on track with the plan and look at the competition and everything work your way back to okay how do we do today on some key you know performance in indicator or metric and check things like that cross training plan whatever just you know you're, you're constantly kind of doing that back and forth looking out coming back looking out coming back and if you're a technical person that becomes a leader it's hard to not just focus on what you understand and you're, you're comfortable with because you're you're looking at your toe tips too yeah so it's like everybody's sitting there staring at a, a lincoln head penny on a on a railroad track and they're all you know trying to make sure they understand exactly what the penny says and there's a train coming and nobody sees it hears it you know and it it's just that they're so focused on the moment they don't even realize it's an irrelevant moment because they're about to get hit by something that none of them have anticipated or expected or even fantasized about as a right. potential threat right right and and threats are easy to talk about that way you know that's a leader's responsibility like parents looking out for their children um but the opportunities actually there's more opportunities than threats and that's also an, a, a looking forward looking outward exercise yeah. you're not going to see anything good or bad if you don't if you don't look up once in a while so that's another key leader function that's it's one of the things that I see a lot of leaders, um, lower level leaders, making the mistake of getting too far down into the works, like we were just talking about, um, staring at their toes. Um, I, I'm, I'm reminded of I'm reminded of the the old story of the, the animals that that call the owl god. You, I don't know if you remember that. It's an old yeah. story where they said the, the owl is wise. He must be God. Wise is because he, he questions everybody or something like that. And they go to him. They He wakes up. Obviously, it's the middle of the day. They start asking him questions. And he's, his only response is who? They're like, well, he must be God because he doesn't, he doesn't, he asks questions. We must follow him. Mind you, this is an owl. This is the middle of the day. They're not really that great sight in the middle of the day. So they call him their leader and he goes and he walks them out literally into the middle of a road and they all get hit by a car. And it's like, okay, what's the problem with that? I said, well, they didn't vet the leader for one. They really didn't get an answer out of him. And then they just pushed him out in front of everything. Humans, thankfully, can be a little smarter and a little more adaptive. <laughs> but yeah. you get some guys that will be just that bad. You know, they'll just like, why do you question my authority? Because um, you're not looking down the street, dude. <laughs> yeah it's it's actually it's kind of like martial arts you know you start off there's you know 800 moves and your first day you say i'm never going to get any good at this i only know one move there's 800 i have 799 to go and they teach you each move in like seven steps so a kick is like you know you know up shift weight stick it out there lock bring it back mm. shift weight you know and you do that by the numbers over and over again. Someday, eventually, they say kick, and you just kick. 
it's all there, right? But they taught you, you know, the quality of every component or element of the movement. But by the time you get to be a black belt, you realize that the guys that you really admire or the women that are really good at this, they're very simplistic. It, it's, they, they see the whole, the whole martial arts thing as a very simple equation. They might have one good kick, one good punch, and, and one good block that they can perform perfectly. So they just practice three things. And you say, well, what about the other, you know, 897 or whatever? And they go, well, yeah. those are interesting, but these are the three that I'm really good at. And I can stop, you know, anything with this block and I can hit anybody and knock them down with this kick or this punch. And I said, so to be a master, you need to know less than, than more. No, no, you need to know the essence of what works, what doesn't work. And then you have to become a perfectionist at the, a few things. Anybody that's been in any business, any, any walk of life ends up kind of in that same spot. And that's why they have a hard time explaining it to younger people because they're looking for details they're looking for recipes they're looking for, and it's more a journey, right? You have to go through it to appreciate what you think is the answer, isn't the answer. And then you have to go through another journey to finally get to a point where you find out what's right for you. Yeah. And leadership is a lot more complicated than martial arts. Yeah. You know, and you know, a lot of guys, uh, a lot of people just, they overcomplicate it right off the bat, just like that, that comparison thinking there must be a solution, an answer, a format, you know, the right meeting structure, the right org structure. And it's not most of the time, you know, if I walk into a room and sit down with a bunch of people, if I just ask when, how, and why over and over and over again, all I get is, you know, vomit of details, information, numbers, measurements. I don't have to say anything else other than those three words until they run out of stuff to say, because there's nothing else to say. <laughs> and if I keep my ears open and I take good notes, I'm pretty well informed and oh, yeah. I, I've kind of run down to the end of those rabbit holes with them and, and I can walk out of the room and somebody can say, well, that doesn't feel like it's very structured. He didn't give us the questions in advance. You know, there was no PowerPoints involved. <laughs> well, no, but you know, that's kind of how you, in, in Six Sigma, there's a thing called the why kind of approach and you just keep asking why until there's no more whys. It's causal analysis, right? We had a, we had a deal on um, one of the personal development things that we went through. And that it was that the question is, what is love? And the person would just keep asking us like, don't think about it when you hear the question, just answer. And I think I only got through like four or five of them before I ran out of stuff to say. And I sat there and I went, well, that's not good. That means I'm missing a lot of things in love in my life. You know, because it's when you ask somebody, well, what is love? They immediately think of the person they love. They don't think about the other people behind the person they love or places they yeah. love or situations that they love or feelings that they love it there's a whole so asking the why 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 until you get down to the bottom of it and go and then somebody yeah. sits there and goes well i don't know okay well there's your problem you don't know so you yeah. need to go back to your team and go find out why when they tell you why you come back and you'll have an actual answer of why we can then begin to be, build some kind of solution around it. But until we know, we're all informed, but. Right. So kind of marrying those two things together, if you walk into a room and you aren't the expert and you aren't up to speed on what's going on with your experts, you can either 
give a speech or you can go through this exercise of asking questions until the water's level, until everybody kind of knows what everybody knows, including you. And it wasn't very intrusive. You, they're all getting to showcase their knowledge and skills and you know insights. And, and all you did is sit there like a sponge and absorb it all. And you were actually facilitated it, right? Another way you can go around it is, and this is kind of a, a way to get people to become self-aware about what they don't know as leaders. I just call it the, the, the dry erase test. So somebody could come in and complain about a process, a system, another person, another division, department, whatever. And it's not always appropriate, but I, I'll say, why don't you take that dry erase pen over there? There's the whiteboard. Design the procurement system the way it should be designed. And then I sit back and I wait. Now, 99 times out of 100, I've done this for years. 99 times out of 100, they don't know anything about what they're complaining about. <laughs> they don't know anything that that other person is doing or how they're doing it. They don't understand, you know, you know, the 50 processes that feed in or the systems or the platforms they're relying on. They don't know if they're cloud-based or there's a server in the basement. They don't know anything. And they just stare at the whiteboard and they look at it and what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, you, you have a lot of opinions about yeah. the procurement system. Yeah. Fill in the blank on procurement system. Doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. You have a lot, of, you have a lot of opinions about Susie. I want you to write down Susie's job description. What, exactly. what do you think it is? <clears throat> then what do you think it should be? It's not easy. You know, it's, it's complicated. And oh, Susie's doing 99% of what Susie's supposed to be doing. You wouldn't change your job description. So it's a, it's a perspective exercise uh, in a lot of different ways. But it also, you know, at the end of it, I'll say, well, you know what? I would really like to get your input. And I think it's something you should know in your position as a leader. You should understand our procurement program or our talent acquisition, capital, capital management, you know, whatever, yep. whatever you want to use, you know. Why don't you do this? Take a couple months and then I'm going to just, without any warning, I'm just going to say, come on in here. We're going to do the same exercise. You'd be amazed. You do that again. They came in and they're like, they know the test is coming. They know they're supposed to know about it. They realize that they were caught throwing rocks at something that they didn't even understand. So there's intellectual kind of, you know, a discrepancy in, the, in, their, in their honesty there because they were, it's a perspective. Now they come back and they can do it. It's, it's, I didn't invent this. This is, this is what engineers do. This is what an officer's candidate school is teaching engineering. You're studying stuff and then they'll just pick somebody out of the room and say, go up on the board and, and draw out the entire turbine system for a blah, blah, blah. You know, all the piping and the wiring and the, you know, and you're like, I mean, I was a SEAL going through an officer's candidate school. I wasn't an engineer. Everybody else in the class were engineer graduates going into the Navy to be engineering guys on a ship as officers. And I'm sitting there, I was drawing D-type and M-type boiler systems, you know, in my sleep, because I was worried they were going to call me. I'm going to be the idiot. <laughs> you know, I, and then once you, you know how to actually draw it, then they start asking you, what do you do if, if you get this indication, like a symptom? And now you're doing a causal analysis, tracking all the flows and stuff. So then you have to understand the function of the dang thing. You know? So I learned that, that, the only way I could not look like an idiot in the room surrounded by engineers was to think like an engineer and be prepared for that particular kind of exam where I had to stand up there and show what I absorbed and what I, you know, like learned. And uh, it just seemed like a really appropriate way to, to, to test lots of people after that. I thought, well, this is pretty good. 
And what if they do put if they put something up on the board? I go great. Maybe that's maybe that's the solution. How many times did you see them coming back when it came to when it came to? Every time I asked them back, and when I told them I'm going to have you come back, every time they were dialed in, and they were aware. And uh, and I bet and I bet they had some solid solutions where it might have even helped the other people that they thought were gumming up the the. the yeah, you know why? Because if they're if it's not theirs. They're an objective participant, which means they have insights that the people that are up to their neck in the day-to-day, you know, absorbed in it, can't see. Yeah. It's a, it, and, they, and then they actually have an input. They had a positive impact. And, and then what I do is I, I tell the story in a bragging kind of way, kind of to other people in the organization. So these people hear through the grapevine that I'm telling it, but I'm not telling that they were dumb the first time. I'm telling that, that they went and learned it all, came back and laid out the whole schematic and showed me stuff and, yeah. So then if I do the red dry erase board down the road with somebody, they know that there's a potentially a positive kind of social, yeah. social yeah. impact here, you know? Total. I yeah. mean, social and, and operational. I mean, if you think about it, when, when you're looking at it from the standpoint of being a leader, <clears throat> you've gained the trust of the people below you because now you're actually thinking about them rather than about things, <clears throat> which is way general. You've made a suggestion and all of a sudden, Susie doesn't have such a heavy workload anymore because now all of a sudden there's somebody else that's sharing the workload or the bottleneck that was over in lead generation. All of a sudden there's mm-hmm. this huge open lead flow. Now they got to hire more salespeople to take the inbound. That's huge. When you, when you have leaders that can have that open perspective and they are objective, even though they're inside the operation, you have a tendency to get to a point where everybody starts thinking almost at scale. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, it, it, it gives, it gives, oh, what's the word? It lends merit to the whole operation as a whole, even though it's you that's doing the objective, uh, objective perspective analysis. Well, I like that. There you go. <laughs> objective perspective analysis. Trademark that quick. I'm going to have to. Yep. Put it on a t-shirt. Yeah. So the other, the other way of doing that is, which I, the last five or six weeks I've been involved in it a lot. So you have a company that's scaling and you got people that are coming and going and, and joining and leaving and, and uh, which you normally have in a dynamic scaling, growing kind of company. Some people just can't handle the stress, you know? Yeah. That's, so that's it's hard to have a corporate memory for a length of time with most of the people that are there. Either somebody left or you keep adding new people because you're growing and scaling, right? So you get to a point uh, where you say, all right, you ask the question, does anybody in this group of, of technical experts that are touching this process have a, a line diagram, like a piping chart of this process? And if you get, well, uh, no, well, we used to have, well, that's because they've, they've evolved and blown past it. And nobody rebuilt it incrementally as they were going which is a leader function, but maybe their leader left for all I know. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, could be. so I've done this, been doing this facilitating thing where I get all the experts in a room and I said, okay, we're going to start at the very beginning. It's called a Gamba walk in Six Sigma. I'm a master black belt in Lean Six Sigma. And I said, all right, you know, I use an example of a tire company and we're going to start with the rubber tree in Malaysia. It's at the very beginning of the process. And the end of the process <laughs> is when somebody's driving off with the fire stones on their car. Sure, sure. And then we go through all of that. And as an example, then we say, and I say, okay, now I'm going to facilitate this. What's your rubber tree for 
the payroll processor, for the procurement processor, for whatever it is, right? And and then I and I have some rules, you know. Everybody's got an opinion. You can't shoot shoot or shot, uh, shout somebody down, and and we build it all out. And it might be a sixteen phase macro build, mm-hmm. and then I have them circle all the areas that are of concern. I circle them red, and then we have another session a couple of days or weeks later, and we blow out those ones that were circled in red. And we run do the same process, and that only may be a four step or it might be a forty step, right? You know, subset, and. We've been doing that lately, and then we just take a digital picture of them. We convert them to, you know, a computer-aided uh, set of graphics, and now we've got a diagnostic tool to figure out where in the D-type D-type type boiler that things are going wrong. <laughs> and, and I'm not I'm not an engineering guy, but man, I tell you what, it it is hard with people involved in processes and intermingling with technology and people and processes. It's hard to get somebody in a room, hand them that dry erase pen, and they can take me from step one all the way to the end holistically. They yeah. stop. There's a gap. There's a, I need Joe, you know? Yeah. 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 But that's, it's good though when you have that kind of gap. Um, this is an opinion. It's good when you have that kind of gap because it forces community where people are just like, yeah, I don't really like Joe. He's kind of weird, but shit, he knows his stuff. So we need him. You know, and you, you, you get, you, you get respect passed back and forth in that way. And people begin to start realizing, you know, although Joe's maybe socially awkward and he's like a super introvert and weird without him, we couldn't make this work. You also cool. get empathy. Yeah. You get a lot of that too. That's so really cool. I've taken these things and, and I've just drawn a, a process chart vertically from high to low on the board, just put it up there. And I said, so you're down here and I'll pick somebody and somebody's up here. What if, what if somebody up here starts pissing in this box? Where's, where's that rolling? <laughs> it's going to roll downstream. So, you know, bad inputs, bad management, bad mechanisms, uh, a shortfall in the appropriate labor, you know, either by quantity or, or talent at any of these steps has this cascading kind of roll down the roll down the process effect. Right. Yep. So, which is hard to think about when you when you think of a process like as a horizontal, but it makes perfect sense if I say if somebody's up here and they do this, you see it's all going to come down. So there are cascading effects, there are linear effects, and there are always consequences of of something happening in one part of the process being delivered down the road. And there are there are interesting reactions of people when they don't realize that they're actually causing this mess that everybody's been talking about for the last two hours because of what they're doing up here. They thought they were <laughs> dislocated from it completely, right? And then they start, as the, they start working this thing back, they go, oh my God, I'm the arsonist. I'm the one that started this fire. I'm the one that did this. <laughs> so it's, it's good. It's cathartic. It's, uh, as you said, it creates a team feeling and, and bonding and, and appreciation of other people's skills and knowledge and also empathy. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just one tool and, uh, you know, there's a lot, but it, that's, that's an engaged leader. That means you're getting involved. And you can do that with senior leaders. Even if you're a CEO, you don't have to, this can be done at every level where there's human beings involved. And that's the good point though. When you do enough of that, uh, even at the senior levels, when you get up into the C-suite and so on and so forth, for a C-level to see what's actually going on down below him and realizing that every decision that he makes or she makes, regardless of what the situation may be in their view, if that decision is going to muck up their own operation, when, when they can see that, 
they, they have a tendency to be a bit more careful about making snap decisions. As much as it is that most successful people decide quickly and change their minds slowly, they'll also make good leadership decisions by getting all the right information first. You know, we got to decide on this today. I need to talk to Jim, Lisa, Tammy, and, and Bobby. I need them in here like ASAP so we can figure this thing out and then run through the exercises and try to figure, you know, is this going to affect, where is it going to affect? Is it positive or negative? Is it bottleneck or, or opening, you know, floodgates? Where are we, where are we with this? Right. It could be an economic factor. It could be a market factor. It could be a whatever factor. When you get that empathy at the same time from an actual leader, they look down and they look down into the, into the operation and they go, mm, they're going to take a lot of strain. Is it really worth putting that strain on them? Well, sometimes you have to, because it's just the way the market is, is bearing at that point in time. It's something that you have to weather together. Maybe you need more resources down there or something. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's makes total sense. Cool. Um, we're gonna take one more break. I'd love to talk way more about this dude, but I'm having too much fun with you. Um, we'll take one more break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the book series that Marty's written, uh, and the, the book that's to come out soon. It's in pre-sales right now. Uh, and what's next for Marty as well. So we'll be back in 30. We're back here. Last section guys. So you guys have been hearing Marty's expertise and that's, that's, that's awesome. But he's also a writer and it's really cool because he like started out with sci-fi books and I'm a sci-fi freak. If anybody knows me, they know I love Star Trek. They know I love Star Wars. They know I love all, you know, Stargate SG one and all that stuff. I'm all about all that stuff, especially because of the fact that some of that technology is actually now what we use. <laughs> we were just talking about this too, right? Before the show. Um, so the things that we thought were supposed to be ready, like the flying yeah. cars and stuff. Eh, not yet. <laughs> but yeah. we got phones that that now act like mini computers and can do all kinds of crazy stuff. And yeah, so you started. We have doorbells that can talk to you. That, I know, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and motion sensors that get triggered by spiders putting spider webs up by them. My cousin just had that happen, which was hilarious. He literally woke up, a motion sensor was on, he wakes up and he's going, what is that? And in the top corner, there's this spider trying to build a web and he's like, oh yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first series that you did was a sci-fi series. Give us a little background on that one. All right. So it's probably six years ago, I read uh, Tim Ferriss's book, The Four, Four Hour Work Week. And I'd wanted to write books and do a couple other things. His, there's a section in his book that talks about living your bucket list. Right. And like, you know, he's get a spreadsheet, list all the places you want to visit and, you know, kind of research the cost of every one of those trips and then do them now. Why you, why you have an income, why you're healthy enough and all that. The problem with me is I've been to 44 plus countries, a lot of them. Multiple times. <laughs> My bucket list isn't, I want to go to a third world country and, and get dysentery. I've done that already. Um, I want, I have, I want to play the guitar. I want to be able to play the guitar chords, do it well. I want to be able to speak Spanish fluently. I've, came close a couple of times and then I, then I stopped practicing and I want to, I wanted to write a book. I wanted to write a, you know, a, a good novel and I wanted to write a good nonfiction leadership book. Well, in his four hour <clears throat> work week, he talks about how you scrounge up all this extra wasted time in your day by kind of inventorying what you're doing with your day for seven days. And then how much time you're spending on watching mindless TV or playing games or whatever it is. Right. And I had time and then I structured it so that I would wake up every morning at five, have coffee, 
feed the animals. We have cats and dogs uh, by about 5.15 and sit in front of a computer by 5.30 and write for an hour, just like as a job. Yep. And, and that I started that six years ago. And, you know, it's like any other habit. It takes a while. But I also read a whole lot about writing. And even if you just write a paragraph and nothing more, you wrote something. So if you write a paragraph a day, eventually you're going to have a book. So I thought it was doable. I set everything up for that. And then I thought, okay, what do I want to write about? Well, if I write about the SEAL teams, I have to get, you know, I have to pick where I'm going to do it. Am I going to do it SEAL teams in Vietnam, SEAL teams in the 90s, SEAL teams now? And if I do it anytime after I got out, I'm not going to know off the top of my head all the gear, all the cool radios, all the things they have now. Uh, the, the basics between human beings and how the guys talk and all that I get, but I couldn't think of myself writing a, a novel that, you know, I was using an M16, but they're using an M4 or something. And you know, <laughs> I was going to get, I was going to get called out too. You know, I thought it was going to be too much research, which I ended up with research anyway. So <laughs> I wrote, I took a piece of paper and I wrote down, what do I want to write about? And so I want to write about the brotherhood and the war, the warrior ethos from the teams that bond between the guys in the SEAL teams, that kind of mission focus, the, the intensity I was talking about before of every individual wanting to be the best they can be, not for themselves so much, but so that they don't let the guy to the left or the right of them down. Those kinds of things, right? And I didn't want to write about something that I'd have to do a ton of research because I didn't understand it. And that's when I, it just, I had an epiphany. I said, well, if I write, if I make this a science fiction book, I can get, have characters that have all these attributes. And if it's a science fiction book, I can make up whatever I want. I mean, they could be throwing nuclear tomatoes at each other. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so I thought, okay, so they're warrior issues, right? Warrior concepts. So if I have warriors in a sci-fi book, how do I want to do that? And I've always been a time travel fan. So eventually I settled with time travel, going back in time. And the Time <clears> Warrior <throat> Sagas started off with this first book, A Time for Glory. And it's in the future, nanny state, peace. Everybody gets all the food, you know, power they want, housing, everything's great. They're in a big city, which is the metropolis of what used to be New York. Uh, it's post-American Civil War, the Second Civil War, and all these big, huge city-states have evolved. And the number one cause of death is suicide from depression because turns out when you take all that risk and all that drive away from the human spirit, they humans get depressed and start to fall apart. They need something to push against. They need resistance. So the government had discovered time travel at one point after the second civil war and kept it to themselves. But they came up with this idea of, of time tourism to allow people to go back in time, see a volcano erupt, kind of, you know, get scared, maybe get chased by an animal, you know, something that, something they wouldn't experience and it, it took on and everything was fine but these corporations came went a step further like you normally do when you're going after adrenaline rush they created these warrior guilds and the warrior guilds focus on different eras in human history where basically warriors fought each other without you know, guns and, and tanks and things you know swords spears were it was all about the skill of the warrior face to face rather than like you know how you know a bow a bunch of guys with bows and arrows shooting at you from a distance right which then maximize all those things on the left side of my paper right uh -huh. so then i um i'm a black belt in, in muay thai so i 
I mixed in a bunch of Muay Thai stuff and training and combatives and advanced uh, um, kind of biology for, for fighters today and created these guilds and basically training centers. There's, you know, hologram, holographic fighting systems where you go in and you're fighting a holographic, you know, you set at different levels and you have to use the real gear. So if you're going to go back to the Byzantine Empire, you're going to go back to the Bronze Age and fighting, you know, against the Romans or something. Um, you have to train in that gear. And then eventually you have to get certified by a weapons master in a competition. And then they sign you off and then you can go back. Wow. And that's what the warrior guilds do. So uh, that's, that's kind of the, the setting, uh, the premise of all four books in that series. The first one starts with a young guy who's a content engineer, which is somebody who comes up with clever stuff to put in uh, entertainment modules because everybody's so bored. Right. And it's a highly paid job. It's, it's critical to, oh, sure. the, to, to everything in the time because <clears throat> the most valuable thing is to be either, you know, excited or titillated or scared or, or crying or laughing. Yep. And his friend, who's kind of a, you know, NFL middle linebacker kind of a personality, talks him into going into this warrior guild, and then they start training. So he evolves from this kind of geeky figure all the way through the four books until he's you know, eventually he's going to become a master of a lot of different types of warfare and a lot of different types of eras. And, uh, and there's other characters. There's obviously, you know, there's a love interest from time to time in there and, and they get to practice all those, those attributes, those, you know, and there's, if there's a, a negative to it, somebody doesn't have those warrior ethos is only about themselves and backstabbing. And, you know, so, so you can see and compare and contrast the, the value systems. Cool. But that's, that's the first through the fourth book. Um, and, and they were fun. And I didn't write them all in a row, then started the SEAL series. I actually wrote the first two time travel books, then felt comfortable enough. Because I was doing research about these. I realized I ended up doing research anyway. Because <laughs> if you can have a fight between the Romans and Germanic tribesmen, you have to know where they oh, might yeah. have fought. Oh, yeah. So I had to get a Pinterest account, and I had to start looking at what are the guys wearing, you know, and accurize that, you know. Because somebody out there was going to call me on oh, that's not, the Romans. The Romans in that era, you know, <laughs> the campaigns in Gaul didn't wear the same thing they did when they yeah, cru crucified fact, Jesus. Their, their, their chest plates weren't exactly just bronze. Exactly. Yeah. So I ended up doing research anyway. And I said, okay, if I'm going to do this much research for the time travel books, I might as well, you know, bite the bullet and try to do the first seal book. So you want me to segue into the seal books? So the seal books, it was, it was pretty easy. I, I just decided it wasn't going to be about me because I was a former enlisted officer. I had 10 years as an operating seal, so I had a, a, an advantage. So I picked your standard young officer who's not been around the block, doesn't know much. And that's how the first book starts called Death Before Dawn. Quick question on that because I don't – obviously, I don't know how this works when it comes to seals. Do you, are you able to go in as an officer or do you yes. need to come? You can't. Okay. Yes. Because right. you went in a slightly non-traditional, well, in my mind, a slightly non-traditional route. You came in as an NCO and then well, left and then came back as an actual officer. Well, the traditional way is officers come in either through the Naval Academy or they graduate college and they go to officer's candidate school. Okay. And, and then they'd show up to Butts as an officer at Butts. 
um, for the enlisted guys, they come out of the boot camp system, they join the Navy, come out of the boot camp system, and they show up at Bud. So I did that in the beginning. I didn't become a senior NCO until you know, eight years later. Right, right, right. And I went to OCS for four months and then came right back into the SEAL team. So I was still a SEAL. It just now is a, yeah. a SEAL with, as an officer. Yeah. Um, that all, of, all of my friends that were senior enlisted guys wouldn't ask me any questions. And so you're an officer now. We're not going to ask you anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, uh, as they say in the teams, you went over to the dark side. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but, but the dark side has coffee. That's the best part. Yes, that's true. Um, <laughs> so the, the first SEAL book, I set it up as a young officer, you're kind of stereotypical young officer in the SEAL teams, not, not completely flawed, but with some flaws and a lot of indecision and a lot of um, self-doubt and the typical interactions, positive and negative with the enlisted guys that are trying to help him and the typical kind of officer response to that, sometimes positive, sometimes not positive. And I evolved this character through the first book and then through the next three books. The, um, the character eventually in the third book is um, uh, taken out of the Navy, medically discharged because of his wounds, multiple combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, has PTSD, he's got traumatic brain injury, a lot of other stuff. And that's called The Brotherhood, the third book. And because I knew a lot of guys that were going through that. And the undercurrent of the, of the third book is human trafficking. We have a SEAL named Craig Sawyer, who's got a whole team of guys that have saved over 700 people um, down in the Southwest. And I, I used him as a source for a lot of the information, but essentially somebody gets kidnapped, a friend of a, a SEAL team guy, that snaps this guy out of the spiral main character. And it gives him a kind of a, a way back uh, path of redemption to try to help this guy find his daughter and of course it, it leads you down the path of the human trafficking world and eventually other ex-military and a couple ex-team guys get involved in doing this and and then the fifth book which came out this may has um it's more of a vengeance book because uh somebody that's very close to him is is murdered a guy that's working in a company does kidnap and recovery and and so he gets pulled into trying to find these guys and, 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 but eventually it's all out of uniform for the second two books, but he's using the same skill sets and he's interacting sure. with military FBI and, and um, yeah. So depending Excellent. on the people that have Excellent followed it, like, books. what's that? Excellent sounding books. I mean, just, just, like, yeah, I, I, I've been, I'm getting really good reviews and people seem to like the way I've evolved the character that, you know, so, That's good. so those, so those are the two series, the novel series. Now you have one more book that's coming out and it's more based on leadership and mostly for, mostly for business. Yes. Okay. So talk to us about the, that one. What's the, what's the title? So the book is called be nimble. The, uh, how, how the Navy SEAL creative mindset wins on the battlefield and in business. It's about a lot of things we've already talked about. It's about being, a you know, intellectually humble so you can keep an open mind, um, how to look at the, the future, how to scan, you know, out and then zip back to the, the present and then scan back out again, how to treat opportunities and, and threats as a leader, uh, how to raise talent, how to find talent, how to select talent, how to scale companies and businesses. The nimble component of it has a lot to do with once you've been open-minded, you've got a good understanding of what the, the, the problem set is, then you have to be 
um, kind of agile and flexible in how you execute because the world changed, life changes, people walk out on you, all kinds of things. And that's a part of being a good leader is not being rigid. So I could have called it be humble because um, it talks a lot about that component of good leadership. And then eventually you get through the book and there's a self-inventory in the first part of it. I, a lot of the readers seem to like that. And at the end of the book, I basically leave you with, you know, this challenge to do all these things and try to improve as a leader, to try to apply these things. And there's some examples in there all the way through of, of, of how I learned this in the SEAL teams. But there's also lots of examples of how I learned it or applied other lessons in the 20 years as a leader in business. So there's a good, a good balance between those two sources of inspiration. Uh, the book comes out in the U United Kingdom on December 10th, comes out January 1st here in the United States, it's available on Amazon for pre-sale right now and at my site, martystrongbnimble.com. And the sequel is now in editing called Be Visionary. Nice, there's a second, even better. Yeah. It's called Be Visionary, uh, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. So the publisher picked that up and I've been working on that this year. So it's in editing now. Well, we've got two amazing business books to look out for and a, and a couple of awesome series I'm probably going to grab. I haven't read novels in years, dude. Um, yeah. And I used to love reading. You may or may not know this one, but it's called the Dragonlance series. They still print them. They just, there haven't been any since that because it was a story that resolved. Um, okay. But fantasy or that kind of what you've written, because like the sci-fi stuff, yeah, you know, I'm, I'd love to, I love to see what human minds come up with when it comes to, gee, if I'm going to write about this, it's kind of like an M4, only it's a laser. And it's got this cool friggin' nuclear tomato that it shoots, you know, shit like that. I like, <laughs> that's fun stuff. Hey, and I'll give, email me your address after this. I'll send you the first book. See if you like I, it. If you like you it, know, I'll send you the probably going to order the rest of them. See you. <laughs> um, for anybody that's wondering, again, it's Marty Strong. You have MartyStrong.com and then you have Marty Strong. I just have MartyStrongBeNimble.com. Okay, so MartyStrongBeNimble.com. Guys, anything that as far as the, the – oh, social media, are you on, where, where are you at? Where can people find I'm, you? I'm on Instagram at Martin L. Strong and also um, ML Strong. And I'm on uh, LinkedIn on the business side under Mart Martin Strong. Cool. Uh, so those links will be down below you guys. As, as usual, we always put them in the comments so you guys can follow Marty and connect with him and pre-order the book. Uh, I, I, I'm going to need to pre-order both the Be Nimble and uh, I'm, I want to read them. And, and I'm actually going to pick up probably four copies of each because I've got three other partners after our conversation and understanding. I want them to read this too. So um, make sure you connect with him. Make sure you follow him. You know, because I'm sure he's dropping some cool knowledge here and there. Um, and if you guys are watching us here on YouTube, don't forget, oops, don't forget the subscribe button on that side and the bell that's next to it so that you know when we get another cool guest like this. Um, Marty, thanks so much for coming and hanging out on Java Chat. It's been completely enlightening. I've, I've I'm keeping two things from you. Nuclear tomatoes is one. <laughs> And the other one that you helped me create, which is objective perspective analysis. There you go. <laughs> we're we're definitely we're we're trademarking that one. I get any I get any royalties on it, I'll split it with you. <laughs> All right. 
but yeah, thanks, man. I, re I really appreciate your knowledge. Really appreciate your time and um, coming and hanging out and having a cup of coffee with me. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having right. me, guys. If you're listening to us on any of the podcast platforms we're on, uh, make sure you download or subscribe. If you're listening to us on Anchor.fm, show some support there. We can always use it. You know, big one though. If you're watching this or listening to this and you know somebody who could probably use this knowledge, send them the link. I mean, it's knowledge. These We bring these guests on here for either you or for your colleagues or your friends to learn something. Share it with them. Send them the link. Hey, I was just listening to this cool guy, Marty Strong, today. Uh, and he gave some real, some real golden nuggets. You should listen to this. We do these things so that you can improve, that you can advance your own knowledge. You can advance your own uh, well-being, if you will. So, uh, as always, thank you very much for making the time and taking the time to come in here, to come and watch, to come and share time with us and have a cup of coffee as well. Remember to stay up, stay safe, stay healthy, and live. For myself, Coffee with Mike, and our guest, Marty Strong. Ciao for now. For more information on Java Chat, visit www.javachatpodcast.com. You've been listening to Coffee with Mike on Java Chat. Tune in weekly to this podcast for the next episode. You can also download or subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform. A production of Oasis Media Group, LLC. Located in Las Vegas, Nevada. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.